Kia ora and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their work, their lives and the inspiration behind their writing. I'm Claudia, the Treasurer for the Committee, and today I'm delighted to be introducing the wonderful Lloyd-Jones in conversation with Kate DeGoldie. Lloyd-Jones is one of New Zealand's most significant and successful contemporary authors. His work includes The Book of Fame, based on the All Blacks' 1905 international tour, and Mr Pip, set amid the Civil War on Bougainville Island in the early 1990s, which won the Commonwealth Writers' Prize. Lloyd talks with friend and fellow writer Kate DeGoldie about his life and work, including the allegory of the cage, and his latest novel, The Fish. Thanks to everyone who made the 2022 Marlborough Book Festival such a success. Every fortnight we will share sessions from the event all the way through to the 2023 Marlborough Book Festival, which will be held from July 21 to 23. For now, please enjoy Lloyd-Jones speaking to Kate DeGoldie. It's lovely to be here and it's especially nice to be here with Lloyd who as well as being um, a writer I've admired for many years is also a friend and we've talked about writing many many times and reading so it's lovely to be on stage with him. Um, It's customary to say some people don't need any um, introduction and it's true about Lloyd but I just want to name his books by way of introduction. Um, there are the ones that everyone knows, um, Mr. Pip, um, The Book of Fame, both huge award winners, um, and Hand Me Down World, Paint Your Wife, The Cage, which was Lloyd's last book. But I also want to mention a couple that others, others might not know, um, including Chu Wu and Biography, which were two fantastic earlier books of Lloyd's. Um, they've both been reissued, Lloyd? Um, Maybe not. No, not recently. Yeah. Um, so, um, well, no, they were actually, sorry, they were, after, after Mr Pitt. Um, right, yeah. yeah. So for any of you who have perhaps only known Lloyd's work in um, more recent times, I do urge you to go to the library and find the earlier work. It's completely fascinating watching his oeuvre and, and how it develops. And um, he's just an incredibly admirable writer from my point of view because he's fearless and um, is always, as we used to say, putting the wood on himself. And um, every book is a new idea and a new way of approaching writing. So please welcome Lloyd. And I should say too, Lloyd has written a beautiful memoir called The History of Silence. Um, And in some respects, it um, connects to the book we're talking about tonight, The Fish. Would you say, Lloyd? Yes, yes, definitely. And um, The Fish is Lloyd's most recent, but it's the second in a um, projected, well, I wouldn't call it a trilogy, but maybe a triptych of books that um, are using fable Mm. to tell story. And so my first question to you, Lloyd, will be, after you've had a reading, um, about Fable, and but you're going to read to us the okay. opening of the stories. Sure. And, and in particular, this is so that we can, um, you can hear in Lloyd's voice the quite astonishing voice of the narrator, which is very subtly um, evoked throughout the novel and changes sort of seamlessly. 
and it's got a kind of incantatory style, which I imagine goes mm. with fable. So yeah. far away. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Kate. Um, gosh, I hope I can live up to that, Billy. No problem. <laughs> Um, I'm going to read from the lectern, if that's okay. It's a lot easier. I thought I'd start um, on page one. Uh, <coughs> The slow gulps of my sister's fish turn in our thoughts, turn our thoughts back to the sea. We feel its draw, because that is what it is to imagine the fish in the world stranded on this long, puzzling sandbar we call home. We look harder at his girls, at the broadening mouth, at the hard rise of his eyes, and we wonder. We've not stopped wondering. It comes down on us like a sack of drowned kittens. Who is he? Where did he spring from? In his class photo, the fish has been placed at the end of the row. There is a gap between him and the girl in the white school blouse next to him. There are no gaps in any of the other rows. We know because we have looked. The rest of the class is shoulder to shoulder. Three rows of pegs, except for the girl next to our fish. She rears away from him away from his fish breath. We find a place to hide the class photo. We worry that the fish will see in the photo what has not been apparent to him in his short life so far. He is different. A fact that would perhaps astound him. My sister has given birth to difference. Worse, she has placed difference in our ranks. What the fish ought to feel transfers itself onto us. The girl in the photo rearing away from our fish makes me want to lean into her and bare my teeth. Over the course of his adolescence, the fish will grow taller. However, his hair, thin and lank at the best of times, will continue to look like an unsuccessful hair plant, transplant. His brow will be overly represented and creased. His girls vulgarly present. His mouth constantly gulps inside rubbery lips. At the fish shop, we place him in the window display. Then we look away, ashamed of ourselves at what we have done, or thought, a fish out of water. We see our fish in the new migrants. The hesitation and bewilderment they try to conceal in the supermarket aisles, pushing their shopping trolleys, afraid their ignorance will give them away the stony expressions with which they view our sports, the foreign way they learn to drive, breaking suddenly with white-eyed fear. What will become of our fish? It is a worry that won't go away. How will he find his place in our world? The fish casually announces one evening he would like to become a train driver. At this astounding news, we all put down our cutlery to look at him. The stone drops, the pigeons scatter, the fish goes on eating. As it happens, my mother remembers a train driver who was also a songwriter. He was even quite famous. She looks to Dad. You remember, don't you? No, I don't. He was on TV. 
Dad shakes his head. Yes, you do. At night, he drove his train and wrote the most beautiful songs. Our fish, of course, isn't interested in writing songs. There is homework to finish. The fish gets up from the table and drops his plate and cutlery in the sink. Lazy fish. He is called back to rinse them. Then, as soon as the door closes, Dad looks up over his knife and fork. Train driver, I don't think so. Mum takes a more encouraging view. A train driver is just the idea he has of himself at this point in time. It will change. Personally, I don't think or believe our fish gives a toss about becoming a train driver. It is a cloud like the ones squid squirt to conceal themselves, a plain and banal idea to put out there while he slips away, leaving us to assemble the meaning of what he is. Hmm. Um, if a good opening always giving us the DNA in an, of a novel, you've done it in spades there because we have a sort of uneasy m meshing of realism and mythic aspects and we have a sense already of the ambivalence of the narrator towards the fish and we have our own ambivalence about, because you can never really work out what the fish looks like and so we never know if he's a fish or a boy or both or whatever and we also can feel there the mother and father, the grandfather and grandmother talking past each other and then there's the sort of clatter of the cutlery so it's all there but you have, um, you see this as a fable and I suppose my two questions are how is it a fable and what does fable do for you now as a writer? Um, well uh, I think a fable has some kind of allegorical element of course, um, and the appeal of fable to me is there's some imaginative risk at heart. Um, you know, the writer is working hard to keep a ball, those balls in the air, mm. um, and you know, I mean, as soon as you declare that the sister has given birth to a fish, well, how do you keep that idea alive, mm. and how do you retain that ambivalence? Because that, that ambivalence is quite important. I mm. think, in the end. Um, and I think um, it probably goes right back to stories that first entranced me, actually, mm. a kind of a, a going back and, and re-engaging with the magic of the fantastic bubbling up in the everyday. Mm. The two things work together, I think. So are you talking about things like Greek myth and legend and um, Aesop's fables those early sort of er stories? Um, I'll cut, not those ones in particular, but a, a better example would be, say, well, would be Kafka's Metamorphosis. So, right. Um, now, you, everyone knows that story. Gregor Samsa went to bed and, and woke up and found he was turned into a beetle, right? Yeah. Well, Kafka could have, he could have started that story quite differently. He could have said, Gregor Samsa went to bed and woke up in the morning feeling out of sorts. Mm. Not really very interesting. Mm. Mm. Uh, but then uh, saying that he's turned into a beetle gives a concrete idea mm. of what it is to be feeling at odds with the world. Mm. Um, so I think Fable um, provides some sort of metaphysical idea of the psychological condition that's at stake, if you yep. like. Yep. Um, 
And that's what I, I was hunting for, I think. And I, I had this feeling after I finished um, A History of Silence, which mm -hmm. I think came out in perhaps around 2013, mm -hmm. um, that I was done with a certain kind of writing. Um, narrative. Straight na narrative. Straight narrative where the eyes are just rolling over the world, you know. Um, and also, um, it'll sound a bit strange to think that when you write a book, it can be a revelation to yourself. Um, but when I wrote my sort of a family memoir, it certainly was a revelation to myself. And I, I, I understood um, immediately why I had written the books I had written. Now, all my, pr pretty much everything I've ever written, um, you know, the grit of sand and the works, is identity mm. and I never really consciously clicked mm. until I, I looked at that memoir mm. and it's not necessarily a good thing to find out um, because sometimes you, you need to be writing out of a, a sort of a cloud of ignorance to some extent and you know? then you become a little bit self-conscious you think that's my big theme that's right yeah 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 it can be a bit um, difficult um, and then I, as I said I was done with a certain sort of writing and um, and I wanted more imaginative risk. Mm. Um, I wanted the idea. Well, another thing happened too, really. This will sound a bit silly, but um, Breaking Bad, everybody remembers Breaking Bad, right? Yep. And of course, we watched it over an entire summer, mm. um, limiting ourselves to one episode a night, then two, then three. Mm. And, and as happens. As happens. <laughs> and, um, and I thought, you know, what is the point in trying to do what it does? You know, that, that kind of representational reality. It doesn't appeal to me. What can we as writers do that TV can't? Mm. And I think it's in this area mm. um, of, of, of fable. Absolutely. And as your reader, what I've appreciated about it is the literal slipperiness of the fish, Colin Montgomery, his name. He's often just called Colin Montgomery. Mm. The two together yoked in an interesting way. Um, you, you can't pin down his face, his features, his physiognomy. You know something's up. But um, it, it deepens the notion of character as a consequence because he's fish, fish and human. So it's extremely effective. And I might say to the audience, extremely persuasive. I, I came to the book with doubts about him being a fish character, but I was completely um, pulled into it. Yeah, most people do. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, well, um, yes. Um, he, go on, Kate. Oh, well, I was just going to yeah. say, um, the, the reason why I really wanted everyone to hear the opening too is that our narrator, and our narrator is the medium through which we understand Colin mm. and the family, Colin the fish. And though it's clear the family have an ambivalence and our narrator has an ambivalence, he begins the story with the first person plural, we. Mm. So he's speaking on behalf of the family and all through the book that ambivalence is there. But you also never doubt that the family deeply love the strange Colin Montgomery, their strange fish boy. And in some ways he's their mascot or totem, would you say? Mm, in, a, in a peculiar sort of a way, yes, but for the narrator, no. Um, no, because the narrator's uh, bewildered. So the, the, the narrator initially is around about eight or nine years old, and then he's about my age towards the end of the book, old. And um, looking back to some extent. Um, but 
the fish is born of a mystery. Um, um, there are two sisters. There's, 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 there's the older, more sophisticated, beautiful one that disappeared. Carla, Carla that disappears fairly early to, to Sydney. And then there's the younger, wild one. And, and um, she becomes pregnant. But no one knows to whom. And um, meanwhile, Carla has invited her younger brother at the age of eight or nine to become her correspondent. And the, old, the word of correspondence is a sort of an interesting one. And it's an invitation, really, to create a parallel world. Mm. He, and the world, he has to do this because he can't see clearly into the, into the world that is around him. They don't know who the father of mm. the fish is. Mm. He, he, he doesn't know anything about his sister's world. She, when she's pregnant, is sent to live in a caravan out at um, a place a bit like Hutt Park, actually. Banished. Banished. Um, and um, so he can only... He, the boy can only kind of bounce off areas that are fairly opaque, mm. but his sister insists on an explanation. Mm. Um, so the fish is born. Out of this, out of this, this sort of abyss of uh, not understanding. Not understanding. Yeah, yeah. He's watching. Yeah. He's watch. He's the watchful child that you get in. He's watchful. Sort of, sort of, yeah. And he's um, he's reporting what he sees, but there's constantly mystery at the heart of it. And yeah. the, the idea of the fish is his best way of describing it. Yes. Yeah. And so we we understand at the beginning that he and, and the use of the word correspondence is so good. Because there is no correspondence, is there? I mean, that's a sort of, um, it's an inversion of the word. He's sending something, but nothing he's saying is corresponding properly, only for him, but not necessarily for Carla. Well, it's a distortion of the silences that yeah. are all around him. And yeah. of course, when she writes home, her correspondence is, is also... Full, <laughs> full of lies. Yeah. 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 So... Uh, yeah. I mean, that's a... That's a a theme and a, an affect throughout the book. The family, two parents, two daughters, younger son and the fish. Mm. The family are always talking past each other. They can't find words and our narrator talks about not being able to find the words mm. um, or misapplying them. Yet at the same time, they're completely obsessed with spelling correctly. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, where, where does that come from? Uh, my mother. <laughs> Um, um, sometimes, you know, sometimes you think, go back a bit and you mm. think, why am I thinking about this mm. fish, you know? Mm. And, you, of course, you write to find out why I'm mm. kind of preoccupied by this, this image. And I wasn't having a lot of luck, but I decided to, to sort of think back to my early childhood and try and bring the fish into that territory and mm. then suddenly everything made mm. sense. Um, so my mother, both my parents didn't have any education beyond uh, primary school. Um, but when I was at primary school, my mother, before I could go off each morning, and I was always very eager to get to school to get, be first bat during the summer, mm. I'd have to go into and, and stand by her bed. Sometimes it was a glass of false teeth there. It was a fairly grotesque kind of introduction to the day. And I would have to do, you know, how do you spell elephant? And so, you know, mm. I could mm. work through there. And I don't know, you remember those spelling mm. books, level one through Definitely. the 10? Yeah. I was a terrific speller, mm. you know. 
Um, not very good on the pronunciation. We didn't do anything on pronunciation, but Just, spelling. Yeah. So it's, it's all form and no substance, yeah, isn't it? The yeah. words are floating separately but mm, not connecting mm, with each other. It's a yeah. brilliant metaphor. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's from her and it's yeah. just a, a funny thing. It's true, the Joneses actually, we do pride ourselves on being, mm. it was a ridiculous thing to pride yourself on. Have you found that you've got less good at spelling as you've aged? You, you want to say something else, Kate, don't you, about my emails? <laughs> <laughs> not at all, no, I've just noticed it myself. Um, just to go back to um, the idea of the fish and the sense of a fable that you're inhabiting. It is interesting, nevertheless, that in order to get the engine going, you did have to go back to Stellan Street yes, in the yes, heart. Yes, yes. And that's, which is why I guess I see such a correspondence between a history of silence mm. in which Lloyd writes both hilariously and most movingly about a, a, you know, an incredibly recognisable mid-century suburban childhood where things were simple but also mysterious and that sort of cloud of mystery is there all the time mm. in the childhood and the history of silence and it's here too. So our nameless narrator um, begins with subserving but not quite understanding and as the book progresses and, it, and it, it's so subtle you don't almost notice and you become aware that in fact this is a book being written mm. by the narrator mm. when he's older. Yeah, I should say too that um, you know um, the history of silence really is it's about all sorts of things, mm -hmm. ancestral silence and so on. Um, um, but the extraordinarily destructive impact of illegitimacy. Um, we illegitimacy. Don't, we, don't, we, we don't think of the bastard child anymore. No. Thank God. Um, but the Jones family was was plagued by that mm. and. Um, um, and my mother had across a, several generations, across many, gen and just repeated over yeah. each generation. So, um, my youngest sister, I, I have older siblings, so I virtually grew up the only child to some extent. But the next one, um, Lorraine, when she was 16, I think, 17, she got pregnant and she was put in the caravan. Mm. So the character in the book is nothing like her. No. But the circumstances mm. are. Mm. Um, so that's, that's where I found it was quite productive mm. to bring this, this mm. um, the notion of the fish back home. Mm. Um, and suddenly, you know, it, it, bringing it back home, you talked earlier, how do you sustain, how do you keep this idea alive of the fish, you know, the ambivalence around it, and it's a preposterous idea mm. in some regards. Mm. You surround it through the believable detail, the mm. lived detail of one's own life. Mm. Um, and that kind of breathes a mm. plausibility into it. It I definitely think. does. Yeah. And it also means that even though we're dealing with, I was trying to find the right word for this book, and it's sort of, I thought in the end it's a threnody, it's a lament for mm. a kind of a family life that was sad in many ways, but also occasionally incredibly funny. And I was most surprised to be sort of smirking and laughing occasionally in the book. And, and you managed to get um, the fish on a bicycle in there as a oh, joke, yes. which was excellent, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. very, very subtly. Mm -hmm. um, just to stay with that, Lloyd, um, your evocation of that hugely puritanical period in New Zealand society, um, I, I think I, I worked out that the Mazengarb report had been issued mm. um, uh, about 10 years um, sometime, it was sometime in the mid to late 50s, was it? Yeah, 58 or 9, right. I think, yeah. Yes, yeah, so the story, that's mm. a quiet um, thing at the back of that because 
both sisters um, are in a way ambushed by sex, mm. aren't they? Mm. And to some degree might be said to represent all the fear that was in the Maze and Garb report. Yeah. But because, um, you know, because New Zealand was this small P puritanical culture, Pākehā culture at any rate, um, one sister goes to the caravan to have the baby. The other sister goes overseas, but we learn later that mm. she too has been pregnant. And the overseas is Australia. And actually, Australia is a quietly really important place in the book because it's where people go to grow up, but also to escape mm. and be mysterious. And that's one of um, our nameless narrator's other mysteries. He's trying to work that out. Mm. Um, but um, just to go back to the caravan, you had a caravan in your backyard when you were young? No. Okay. That's the fictional part. That's the fictional bit. It doesn't matter. <laughs> um, but, yeah. I mean, the caravan then yeah. becomes a really potent symbol in the book. Yeah. I had a friend who, who, who had a caravan in his backyard. Yeah. yeah. And there's something about that caravan that's in suburbia at that time in history that feels deeply recognisable to any New Zealand reader, I would warrant. Mm. You know, so mm. it does ground it hugely. But the mm. caravan also sort of changes shape at times, and cha its materiality is slightly suspect too. I could never quite get a bead on it. It's highly described, subtly, but it's mm. mysterious. Mm. And the nameless second sister, I want, you, I want to ask you about namelessness in a minute, is in the caravan acting up quite a bit of the time, and mm. then she's there with the fish not coping, mm. and then she disappears. Mm. So both sisters have disappeared. And it's possible she's disappeared into the sea. We don't know. We'll find out. Mm. We don't find out. But the sea is important here too. Why? Why did you not give her a name? Um, I don't know. Um, mm. I'll probably be making it up now. But um, when you think about it, who did I give a name to? The one that can't be named. Yeah. The fish. Yep. Uh, and and. Uh, his mother mm. is sort of more kind of like a phantom, really. Even though she's more real, mm. she's she's more like a phantom mm. in the life of the of the younger brother. I mean, it's very effective because, along with the narrator, we can't quite know her because she's not named, mm. and because she disappears. Mm. Um, well, I think she is known through her interactions, what she says, and how she, you know interacts with things, how she responds to various crises. Yes, that's things. true. Actually, I yeah. what I should say is we can't quite know her motives and mm. the reason for, for mm. why she disappears, mm. but we suspect predation of some sort. And that's mm. another thing that's hanging over that territory, mm. that time and that place. At one stage, quite near can, the end of can, the book... Can I just break in there to yes. say that one thing that did cross my mind at, at, at that bit, it would be easy to give names to things, to conditions and all this sort of thing, but mm. in a way it would it would blow the perspective of, mm -hmm. of the young pair of eyes on yep. things. Yep. The young pair of eyes doesn't have those words or explanations. Mm -hmm. Things just happen. And yeah. also when he's young, he knows himself in relation to his sister, his mother, his, so he, I mean, the, the, the fish's mother. So everyone has a role in a mm. sense. So it does seem to, totally appropriate. Yeah, well, there's a scene earlier uh, where he, he's walking down towards the river and he sees um, a couple having mm. sex in the, mm. in the back of the car. Extraordinary scene. And she, this, this, the woman in the car, they break off and the, 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 the guy was, you know, very angry and, you know, and the woman 
invites him to come and stand on her side of the car. She's lying in the back seat. And she says, give me your hand. And he's already given a false name of who he is, by the way. He's stolen the name from Obi Dick Ahab. Mm. And she holds his, she's got her thumb pressed into his, into his, into his wrist, mm. into his pulse. And then they resume having sex. He is standing with his head over the roof of the car. So he is attached to something he can't see. Mm. And that is how it is mm. with the family. He's mm. attached to something mm. whirling around him that mm. he he's just can't make sense of. Mm. And mm. that feeling is palpable for the reader. Um, he's our he's our only way into it. But we're and we're reading what he sees. But we're we're as puzzled as he is. And um, as time goes on, he's less puzzled. But he still doesn't quite tell it how it is. I mean, I read some reviews that suggested he was an unreliable narrator. But actually, I felt like there was a kind of deeper truth that he was plumbing um, by not being particularly accurate about things. Well, he's, he's surrounded by an unreliable world. Mm. Um, that's the closest mm. to the truth. Mm. And, and so he has to make sense of an unreliable mm. world, you know. Mm. Yeah. To get back to the sisters, um, the loss of the Fisher's mother, Colin Montgomery's mother, um, haunts the family. Mm. And um, they don't exactly talk about it, or it's not on the page I'm talking about it, but we know everything they do um, is sort of infected by that. And the grandmother, mother, is deeply distressed, obviously. And her decline is recorded as is the father's by the son. So the son's watching all this. It's a novel of losses and elisions. So much stuff isn't explained, and there are many losses. But weirdly, it's not a tragic book. Um, it's a lament, but not desperate. Mm. And um, the losses are all to do with the sea and with water, but the sea particularly. And there are numerous beautifully melded literary references throughout the story to the sea and to the sea in earlier literature. Um, maybe the, a nameless sister disappears into the sea. The father, uh, these aren't plot spoilers by the way, it, does, it just doesn't matter, does it? No. Um, the father drowns mm. um, while he's swimming with the fish. Mm. And the book um, comes to an extraordinary climax during an, um, a marine disaster, which we know is the Wahine. Mm. Um, when did you know that was going to happen? I, I didn't. No. Um, I think when, you, when you're writing these things, you, you have to be prepared to surprise yourself. And mm. something, these things just have to grow out mm. of, of the story as it's... It, the story is revealing itself mm. to you, isn't it? Mm. You, you, Absolutely. People often say, oh, I've got a great story to tell you, and often it is, but it's not one I want to write. Because no. um, the whole exercise in writing is one of exploration and discovery, you know. And as you said, we write to find out. Yeah. Um, but just coming back to the sea, the sea is actually a very, very important element because I always think of the sea as a, an image of, of the subconscious, you yep. know. So everything, we can see the lid of the sea, but we can't really see beyond it. Mm. Um, and so much of the story is about the lid, the mm. appearance, the skin of things. You can't really mm. see beyond. Mm. Yeah. 
yeah, there's a feeling of things going on mm. underneath, but we don't know what they mm. are. Mm. But also, you do actually have a strong relationship with the sea, don't you? Yeah. yeah. Because the descriptions of the sea, the being in the sea is extraordinary. Well, it's a very sensual place yeah. to be. Yeah. But I felt it could only be written by someone who had lived in the sea themselves. Mm. Oh, thanks, Kane. Yeah. <laughs> you fishy yeah. old thing, you. Yeah. Hi, I'm Kate DeGoldie. I'm a writer and a publisher and a reader. Awesome. And what do you think of our Marlborough Book Festival? Well, it's one of the great festivals in the Southern Hemisphere because it is so carefully thought through. It has superb content, very carefully curated collection of writers and presenters and then it looks after everyone at the festival writers and the participants and their audiences so beautifully. Wine is very present which is of course wonderful but um, everyone stays in the most beautiful surroundings and are looked after, every need is looked after. And then there's just the communion of writers and, and the communion of writers with their audiences. I've had such good conversations with people after um, various um, presentations. So it's, um, it's, it's an absolutely top happening for me, yeah. The, um, I, I want to talk about the wahine a little bit later. Um, we are in 50s, late 50s, mid 60s, and clearly ending with the wahine to a degree. But um, the sort of, the difficulty in communicating, the sort of basic drabness of life, um, the sense of a country that's still emerging in some way, it was raw and hard. At one point in the book, you, um, you describe the sound of men laughing or talking, and it's the sound of, the, the narrator hears it as the sound of wolves. There's actually quite a lot of menace mm. around it's never explicit, but you feel the menace around gender relations and this sort of hovering predation that's there. But at the same time, it's the opportunity for some actually hilarious um, scenes. And one of the best is the scene with Norman Kirk, the oh, leader, Mr. Yeah. Norman Kirk, the leader of the opposition. Mm. And this is because, and I particularly like the way you don't over-explain the book, we just realise we're going to Mr. Norman Kirk's office because they don't know what's happened to the younger sister. Mm. Would, do, would you want to read that? Does this just show also what an incredible chorus of voices there are in here? There's many modes and um, moods, I guess. Okay. Um, right. I always find it easier um, to read standing up for some reason, so um, hence the left turn. Um, so, um, as Kate said before, um, the sister, uh, the mother of the fish, actually named the fish after their father, Colin mm. Montgomery. She's quite mischievous, mm. or possibly not. Uh, um, so, just get used to the idea of, um, of that. So, they're driving from the hut into Wellington. On the way into the city, we casually note the slide of the harbour and the slashing views across to the eastern hills, awash in gorsy sunshine. But none of it matters. We have been sent for. What will it be like? How will we be? Can we pass ourselves off? These are questions directed to our fish. Our mother speaks brightly about nothing in particular. 
She is trying out being an interesting conversationalist. Outside Parliament, where we look for a park, our attention floats across the lawns to the imposing stone steps and to the flag fluttering in the breeze. It is hard to believe we are expected. We enter the main entrance and we're passed from one set of hands to another until on the floor of the Leader of the Opposition's office. As we leave the lift and round the corner, there he is, larger than any of us have imagined, breathing in and out of the flesh of himself, his hoarse breath pushing back at the fish's own asthmatic wheeze. Norman Kirk looks my father in the eye and closes both his hands around Dad's. He is enormous. Later on the way home, when the visit is reviewed, we will recall how he had to turn sideways to fit through the door to his office. Mum and Dad sit down on a two-seater. I take the armchair. Norman Kirk is on his way back to his desk when he notices the fish has nowhere to sit and his large, soft face winces. He pulls back his own chair, insists the fish try out being the leader of the opposition. Dad laughs. It is hard not to. Mum cries, Colin Montgomery, look at you. Norman Kirk places his large hands on the desk, then leans forward, his face turned on its side to grin at the new leader of the opposition. A staffer arrives with a camera. A photo is taken of the fish sitting at Norman Kirk's desk. Mum, Dad and I are arranged into a circle of support staff behind the fish. It is our family's finest moment. Norman Kirk asks Mum if she would like a cup of tea. Then he waits, and it is as if the affairs of state have been put on hold. At last Mum nods, says, Milk, one sugar, please. Then Norman Kirk presses a button and speaks into a device on his desk to pass on Mum's request. As there, as there is a short wait for the tea and the biscuits, the fish picks up a pen and begins scribbling over the leader of the opposition's notepad. We wait with a held breath for the fish to look up and meet our dark faces. Norman Kirk laughs it off, says he predicts the fish will come up with better ideas than the best paid policy analysts. The fish hears that and gets back to work. Dad is already sweating inside his suit. It always happens. He can't wear one without looking like he is about to be put in prison. He adjusts himself, wriggles forward to the edge of the two-seater. He is a bit over upright, a bit over eager in his willingness to please. Norman Kirk reaches down for a folder on his desk and holds it up for us to see. He says he has read the case details, then glances at his watch. He says the shadow minister for police was to have joined us, but was called away at the last minute. There is a knock on the door, and the staffer enters with the tea and a plate of biscuits. We wait for him to fill the cups. It seems to take forever. We wait for him to leave and close the door behind, and then Norman Kirk holds up the folder to resume. He says he is deeply unhappy. Our family has not found the resolution that might offer the peace which in time we might reasonably expect. He hopes to deliver that for us. Once more, he apologises for the absence of a shadow minister for police. He says he intends to bring the case to his notice. As for the fish, he says, the child has lost a mother but gained many surrogate parents, for that is what a decent society offers, 
It is a source of hugs and reassurances, and when a loss is suffered, the pain is shared. The fish looks up, the pen of the leader of the opposition in one hand, and stares across the room at the large man by the window. My father bites down on the hard biscuit, and when it makes a cracking sound, the fish shoots him a look of irritation, then turns his attention back to the picture it is drawing on Norman Kirk's desk pad. My mother asks Norman Kirk if he has children of his own. He nods, and once more his heavy eyelids catch our attention. He seems to know the void that our family has fallen into. By now, Mum's eyes are shining brightly. Dad stares at the floor. He wants to offer something of his own. It is coming off him like heat. He looks up to say he knows the police have plenty on their plate. Over the top of Dad's surprising capitulation, Norman Kirk says yes, 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 as if all of what he is hearing is already known to him, and that they, he and Dad, are comrades in this situation where a young woman's disappearance has been allowed to drift onto a pile of similarly unresolved cases. The large man leaves his window perch. His large, crumpled body creaks breathlessly as he leans down to place a supportive hand on Dad's shoulder. Dad looks up. My daughter is a lioness. She is out there. I know she is. The word lioness shifts the attention of the room to the creature seated at the desk. Mum tries to put things right. Colin Montgomery, sit up straight and look up, please, sweetheart. The fish raises his narrow face. His fish lips touch and part and touch and part again as his eyes wobble in their fishy sockets. There had been some discussion at home about which of the photos of my sister to bring. Now Dad gets up to retrieve the photo from his pocket. The effect of it on Norman Kirk is astonishing. Like a wand has been waved over him. He looks hard at the leggy girl on the lawn, then back at the fish scribbling behind his desk, and perhaps for the first time twigs that the fish in his chair is my <coughs> sister's child. The light from the windows highlights the burl cream in the fish's limp hair. I knew the burl cream was a mistake. It makes the fish look severe, less sympathetic. And that is what showed up in Norm Kirk's face. Now another staffer in rolled up shirt sleeves pokes his head inside the door. He mutters something behind his hand to Norman Kirk that ends our visit. There are handshakes. A woman we haven't met until now escorts us to the lifts and at the end of the corridor. We descend to the ground floor without a word and a few minutes later step outside to sunshine splashing across the grounds of Parliament. And we head back to the car puffed up with the knowledge of where we have just been. On the way home, none of us can remember what had been promised, if indeed anything had. There is some discussion about the chocolate Wheatons. Mum thought the biscuits could have used a freshening up. <laughs> the, uh, the chocolate Wheatons are a genius touch. There's something about um, the re repetition of Norman Kirk and Leader of the Opposition that mm. underscores their um, incapacity. You know, they're, well, he's big and he represents the government, but he's... There's gravitas, yeah. physical gravitas, and there's authority. Mm. And, 
you know. But in fact, he's ineffectual. Yeah, it's a ritual. It's a sort yeah. of pantomime, really. Yeah. Um, Is that based on anything? Or you uh, imagined it? No, I just imagined yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But it felt completely convincing. I have had conversations <coughs> with politicians. Yeah. yeah. But it, um, it makes me think about the without being explicit about it, the country that you're implying, the culture that you're implying, as well as big structures like government and the small individual and the struggling family, etc. And there's a, there's a phrase at the end of the book where you're talking about the wahine, um, and it seems in some way to actually represent the country. And it is, you talk about, uh, the narrator says, a big ship-borne society humming along a cargo of complacence. I mean, it's talking about the people mm, on the ship, mm, obviously, but mm, it, it has more ramifications yeah, there's than There's a frailty, um, and anything can, can go wrong, but you yeah. never expect it to. No. I mean, if you just look at recent years, um, <coughs> well, current, the current situation in the world is unbelievable. Mm. Uh, three or four years ago, who would have thought, five years ago, who would have thought that somebody like Trump mm. would be president of the United States? Who would have imagined? that Putin, as the, was reported in The Guardian tonight, said, mm. bring it on, let's, ha let's, have a, let's have a real battle in the Ukraine, mm. the West, you know? Mm. Somebody like Boris Johnson, Brexit, mm. climate change. So um, the, mm. whole, the whole position, place of truth in, mm. say, American politics. Mm. Um, the new right, the Republican Party, sort mm. of, you know, has gone mad. And then Everything is very fragile, you know? And in a way, we are like the narrator. We're looking at it all, at it all disbelieving and um, kind of inarticulate in the face of it. Yeah, but there's... <coughs> until it happens, you don't expect it to happen. No. I think that's the point about the... Complacency. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And rightly so. Why should you? Um, and, but, and, but for many years, we had every reason not to mm. expect these sorts of things. But, Lloyd, um, I'm, I mean... There's always the sin of overreading, but the feeling, I mean, there's the family story and there's the potent narrator, but at the same time, it does seem like a story of New Zealand at a certain point in mm. its life. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. A and that was deliberate. Yes, yeah, yeah. A kind of naive country. Well, I think those silences that um, are in the book, um, writ large, right across mm. the country, I mean, mm. I don't think New Zealand really had a conversation with itself. Mm until probably the 1980s or mm. maybe no maybe in the late 70s mm. um, um, in terms of uh, land rights and, mm. and, and, and so on um, mm. and then I mean we've talked about this before how the kids today um, they may not know what the capital of China is but they actually are much better placed in some regard in terms of <coughs> A broader acceptance of difference. So there's a there's a better conversation across gender, mm. um, a much more accepting sort of society, a more generous society in some respect. Yeah. Not yeah. so quick to judge. Yeah. Uh, yeah, better one. And I don't I don't think that was necessarily in place back then. No. Yeah. That, um, there was tremendous conformity. Yeah, and and a sort of desperateness in terms of trying to communicate and trying to move forward, and the inarticulacy is really huge. Well, you've got to have the language. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the family in the book does not mm. have the language, mm. does not have the emotional language. Mm. Yeah. And I'm going to ask for questions, but that's a, there's a question that I want to ask you around that business of language and reading and writing. Um, it's 
we've got about 10 minutes left. So if you have any questions, could you please um, put up your hand? And I think maybe a mic will come towards you. Um, does anyone have a question? It doesn't have to be about the fish, but um, if not, for the moment, I, I want to ask you, Lloyd, it's inescapable. There's a huge presence in the novel of other books, and that's mm. what happens when you're a reader and a writer. You are, in, when you're writing, often talking to other books, books that have formed you, and books that um, whose symbology um, speaks to you that mm. you want to use as well. So, you know, right from Aeschylus through to Moby Dick, mm. you're, you're referencing books in which the sea is, you know, mm. a character. But more than that, there's a sense that the reading that the narrator has done has armed him and fueled him and nurtured him to the point where he can start exploring his family's story and writing it down. Yep, and, and um, rubbing up against the notion of narrative, of, of invention yep. and, and, and so on. Um, quite a liberating thing. Yeah. Um, that things have to be joined up, the dots have to be joined up in some way. Mm. If no one else is, there's an invitation for you to do it. Mm. So those stories, in the first instance, Moby Dick, um, and then, of course, Robinson Crusoe. Mm. Uh, yeah, these are quite... And, and later, you know, the Odyssey and so on. Um, mm. Yeah, they're kind of sort of touch points because he is he is actually wanting to be a writer so mm. they're kind of touchstones he's mm. the, the posts he's 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 passing along the way yeah they're yeah. not fully explored no. because if they were it would be a different book mm. um it would it would have different a different structure about it yeah but you're also aware that they've become an important furniture of his mind yeah. that yeah. have um mm. enabled him to tell the story in the end so I'm, I'm interested in your reading. Um, were, were they? Um, was it similar for you as a young person, or did that that journey through those texts happen later? Much later. Those those particular mm. ones. But I was a reader. Um, you know, um, my mother. She she led all her children to the library. Mm. The library was. You know, she knew that that was the the gold mine. Mm. Um, um, but, you know, um, I read Oscar Wilde, Wilde's fables, of course. I think mm. we're going to be talking about this in, a, mm. in another session and Emma and the Detectives and, and mm. the, the, these sorts of books. But actually, um, the one thing she did, she got me a subscription to Knowledge Magazine. I don't know if anybody remembers Knowledge Magazine. Yeah. Um, and I, I flicked through. It, I was very excited to get this because of the Greek myths mm. and um, I wasn't directed to them I just found them and um, which is where the best reading happens yes I suppose yeah. you know because it is an act of discovery isn't mm. it and uh, yeah and it, it is interesting how readers and writers sort of map their way through life um, from one book to the mm. next I I always resist being given a book mm. um, because I haven't found it mm. or hasn't sort of I haven't arrived there in a logical sort of a way. Mm. It's an interruption to the process. Mm. Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful kind of freedom I think um, that goes right back to when I was a child, wandering mm. around the massive lower hut, mm. fabulous library, which was the biggest building in the hut in those days. And it was actually had books in it, like unlike libraries today. Uh, 
And that yeah. actually tells you something good about the culture at that point, doesn't it? Well, yeah, we, 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 we were readers mm. back then, mm. yeah. The, the book begins, Lloyd, with an epigraph from... Um, oh, yeah, Milos. Milos, yeah, the uh, poet? Yeah, yeah, poet, yeah, Polish poet, yeah. A Polish poet. When a writer is born into a family, the family is finished. Yeah. <laughs> did that come? Did that come after the book or before? Um, after. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it sort of resonated anyway because, um, you know, when you, we, you, everyone here will know what it is to be a member of a family, and if we all sat down and, and wrote <coughs> a version of that family, uh, the perspective would be different from one sibling to the next. Mm. Um, but as soon as a writer actually puts down a mm. version that becomes, that has an authority mm. um, that others resist, but it becomes the record, mm. the fixed record of something. Mm. And, um, you know, um, people who thought they had their own agency, as we say, turn out to be characters. Mm. So that, 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 that family is kind of diminished in that mm. regard. Yeah. H how have you navigated that over time? Uh, with my... Mm. Oh, <laughs> You'd need a whole another session, Kate. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you know, um, when I wrote the, the memoir, A History of Silence, um, I know my brother was really angry um, because he doesn't like to have his humble origins revealed, and particularly right. the bride book and all the rest of it, which mm -hmm. is an. But he, I don't think he could quite imagine. He couldn't see how those pieces sort of fit together the way they did. Mm. But he did say, I got mum absolutely right. <laughs> um, I mean, she's quite a poet. I mean, I feel I can't help but connect the mother in this story with your mother. She was a, she was a potent character in life, wasn't she? Yeah, um, she was. Um, um, there was no conversation in my house. Um, my father couldn't really, couldn't really talk. Um, he, he was a very inarticulate man. It's not to say he was stupid, but he was inarticulate. Mm. And, my, and they were both wounded people, um, deeply wounded people. And my mother, you know, would have these bouts of depression. We didn't have the word for depression. No. Um, and she would retire to her bedroom. So the house was had this resounding silence mm. about it. And it was a sort of a... It made it was a scary kind of a silence, really, um, and you had to be quite careful what you said, particularly around my mother, because mm. things could go from being okay, you know, how do you spell elephant, to mm. volatile mm. doors being slammed and all the rest of it. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, one wants to be careful about saying that um, literature is redemptive and. Um, but of course, I believe it is. <laughs> yeah, of course. And yeah. Um, you know, mm. Auden said poetry does nothing. Oh, I don't believe that. But it's but in fact, mm. that is um, a more complex quote. Um, what follows it sort of um, complicates it. Well, and but, but can I just tackle that because yep. surely poetry changes everything um, when poetry is in the business of, of, of naming the most difficult things in the world to name, mm. things that we don't even have words for. Now, who can possibly say, when you're being led to a place, 
that hadn't been expressed before that mm. particular phrase or sentence, they're not changed. No. They're, le- they're being led somewhere, surely. Mm. A concrete mm. place, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, and it seems to me this book um, stands firmly in the, um, not the bibliotherapeutic situation, but the idea that it is, um, these are totems that you take with you through life that help. And in particularly the act of writing, um, mm. which of course is reading's twin, and because it ends with, we, we realise that um, as our narrator's voice subtly changes and he goes more from we to I as he personally is grappling with the mystery of the fish um, we realise he is living in the caravan now which means that the caravan acts as a kind of womb as much as yes, because the mother retreats to it at mm, one point mm. the fish is born there sort of yeah, and he goes there to recall the family and explore it. Yeah, the caravan's really important. Um, so once the um, the mother of the fish disappears, they bring the caravan home. So they're actually bringing <coughs> the source of great uh, pain and and mystery and placing it right in the backyard. Mm. And the mother then takes um, refuge in that, and to some extent to try and find her daughter or reclaim her or something, mm. begins to wear her clothes and begins to mimic some of the behaviour, mm. some of the destructive behaviour. Mm. And then, right towards the end of the book, which is when by this point the narrator, as I said, is somebody in his 60s, mm. he's written the story in uh, in the caravan, which, mm. as you said, is a perfect... The, the womb is a very mm. good word because it's, a, it's mm. nourished um, the writing of the whole and thing. the. The liquid in the womb is the same temperature as the sea. Very good, Kate. I mm. wish I'd thought of that. You told me that once ages <laughs> ago. Well, yeah. you wrote about it for oh, us. Did I? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I found that deeply satisfying. So that we, we come to the end, and I'll get you to read this to finish, Lloyd. Um, something else I was going to ask you just then that you said. Oh, yeah, the image of the caravan being helicoptered oh, yeah. into a lower hut backyard. Mm was marvellous mm. and, and actually sort of had buried in it the fabulous that is yeah. throughout this book as well as the really concrete and material and it made me think that and because I, I was sort of thinking about this all the way through this sort of takes its place beside books like Sydney Bridge Upside Down and some of Janet Frame's work it's got that mythic I mean it's all mm. yours of course mm. but it, I feel like it's part of a tradition as well though you've revitalised it I think if there's no other questions, um, I, I think it would really be really lovely, Lloyd, to um, read the last paragraph. Okay. Because its, it's very last sentence is beautiful. Okay. Uh, you, you mean that last That last passage? paragraph, yeah. yeah. Okay. I finished the story of our fish late one Sunday afternoon. It was a feeling of tremendous relief, like coming up for air. I got up from the table and stood in the caravan doorway to watch the shadows creep down the hills toward me. Slowly, the wider wider world returned, the sheep and their relentless chewing, the watchful birds, that whispering sound dry grass makes as a breeze passes through it, as though the earth is speaking. I heard a beast confined to a pen in the hills some distance away, and I wondered if, in fact, it was my own groaning relief that I heard. Then I began my own uncertain walk back out into the world. Great last line.
Oh, well, thank you very much for coming along on this uh, inclement weather. Yeah. <laughs> and thank you, Kate. Thank you, Lloyd. Um, Lloyd will sign books outside. Um, I urge you to buy the, buy the fish. I, I just want to say that over the COVID period, I found reading really difficult. I started perhaps 60 books and never finished them. And I've only slowly come back to whole novels. And this was a completely immersive and wonderful experience. I feel like I've recovered reading, Lloyd, <laughs> as a consequence oh, of The nice. Fish. Yeah. So um, get it. Thank you, Lloyd. Thanks very much, Kate. That was Lloyd-Jones speaking to Kate DeGoldie at the 2022 Marlborough Book Festival. A big thanks to all the writers that have supported the festival, as well as the audiences that attended in person or listened online. If you'd like to learn more about the event, head over to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and tell a friend. Thanks for listening. <laughs>